Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I interview some pretty amazing disabled people and allies of disabled people. Today, we're going to be talking to Chris Fry. Chris Fry is a disability rights lawyer, distributor, and innovator with cases which make changes to everyday life for disabled people. I'm so excited to speak to Chris. He is a member of the Shaw Trust Power 100 list of most influential disabled people in the UK, and I'm so excited to talk about all things law with him. I'm so looking forward to hopping into this discussion. It's just great doing good things that make a difference. You know, when I when I get on the bus, you know, and I see somebody moving the buggy out of the space on the bus, you know, I think, well, that's good. I had something to do with that. You know, little life wins as you go. You know, uh, and that's good enough for me. Then 2010 happened, and the Equality Act came in, and I thought, hang on, most of the people I'm helping out here, I, I should be doing more than just getting them a compensation check. I should be thinking about the way in which you know, their lives are going to go after they part company with me or my law firm. For all the deficiencies in the law and the access to justice points that are, you know, very relevant and, and current, it, it's really, it is still possible for one person to change a policy or a practice for the benefit of potentially millions of other people. Amazing. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the wheelchair activist. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I I think, and apologies to any previous guests, but I think you're the first guest who is on the very coveted Power 100 list. <laughs> oh, well, well, obviously you're very you're very lucky to have me, but <laughs> <laughs> it feels the other way around. Um, it would be wonderful if you could tell our guess a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm a lawyer um, and I specialise in making changes for people to help create a more accessible uh, and inclusive environment uh, for everyday life at work and in a consumer setting and uh, fairly well known for picking fights with people that are bigger and more important than I am and uh, hopefully winning them uh, so uh, so yeah basically my what drives me is that I want to get involved in making the world a better place for people and using my legal experience and expertise to do that. Amazing and you have been involved in some fairly high profile cases in the disability community which one do you think people would most likely know about? Um, I think the most recent one is the case where we successfully established that the cabinet office discriminated against uh, deaf people who use British Sign Language as their first language by not providing interpreters for the, um, well, throughout the COVID pandemic or indeed still at all. Um, But before that, I was involved, I've been involved with other cases going over over the years. I helped with the case that established that first come first serve policies um, are generally always unlawful. Um, And in particular, that was in in relation to making sure the wheelchair space was accessible to wheelchair users on a bus. Um, And there's loads and loads of other everyday cases that I do that don't hit the press, um, which I, I feel equally very satisfied about making little changes for. Uh, and uh, hot off the press, the latest case I'm going to be doing uh, involves trying to uh, stretch the definition of or explore the definition of what accounts for an assistance or support animal. Uh, so I'm about to launch a case for Chloe the cat. Oh, wow. Uh, and her owner, uh, in <laughs> which, uh, which I think is going to be a, one of those water cooler conversations. Um, uh, and which, you know, I really love because cases like that, you know, provoke conversation amongst people who don't really think disability on a day to day basis. And it makes them think about 
you know, what if, um, and um, uh, and hopefully adjust their attitude. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. So that's those are the cases that people, I think, will probably recognise me for dealing with, and um, and probably will shortly see as well. I have to ask, what does Chloe the cat do? Because I think people are really familiar with assistance dogs, but is Chloe the cat more of an emotional support animal, or what? What does Chloe do? Yeah, she she um she she looks after a guy. Well, she helps. She helps uh, uh, a guy called Ian um, manage his ASD and anxiety, for example. So in everyday life, when he catches the bus or gets on the train or goes to the supermarket or the cinema, um, having Chloe with him helps him to manage those anxieties. Um, And um, of course, you know, we know that, that, that there's not really, I mean, people accept that guide dogs for example, are trained to a particular standard and you know are recognized as guide dogs and lots of people give lots of money to them. But there are other support animals, both in terms of emotional support and physical support, um, which which fulfill the same role but without the same title necessarily. And uh, it'd be interesting to see where uh, where the courts or how the courts can help us to clear up the uncertainties because if you are someone like Ian uh, who really does need some someone like Chloe the cat to take with him to places to be able to access everyday services um, then the anxiety of not knowing whether you're going to be let in you know isn't great and mm. and it's not great for a business either because they don't know and they might get it wrong and they don't want to be getting things wrong I'd like to think most businesses don't want to get it wrong uh, so so I mean, in a nutshell, those are the cases that that I run at the moment. It's a very, mm. I'm in a very fortunate position to be um, helping to v- develop the law at a time where, you know, where I think we're all pioneers at the moment. Um, well, within the, ne- the next generation of pioneers, um, pushing the boundaries a bit, see how how much further we can get them, and um, it's a privilege to be involved with that. I think that that's so interesting and will really challenge the idea of what animals can do for people with all sorts of needs and hopefully you know broaden people's understanding of that um so i there's so many things i want to ask you i think particularly one of the things i'm really interested in is your background in law because that's something that you and i share um and I um, I think I've mentioned this to you, but I personally, when I was in university and I thought I wanted to be a barrister, as everyone does, they always think that they're going to be Colin Firth from Bridget Jones' diary doing uh, famous human rights cases, um, or at least that's what my mother thought, um, that I was told when I was doing work experience that I wouldn't be successful in the barrister world because of my disability because to prove your commitment to a chambers which for people who don't know it's essentially the set of offices that barristers are involved in that was told that you have to be the first one in in the morning and the last one out in the evening and I knew that just physically I wasn't going to be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to sustain that. So I'm really interested in your experience with the law because that's one of my biggest regrets is listening to that advice and taking it as the truth. So I'd be really interested to know what is your experience in the legal world being like? Well, um, you know, I think that there have been changes. I've been qualified for over 20 years now, and there have definitely been changes in that time, um, which have, I'd like to think have made the profession, the legal profession, more accessible. But, I mean, certainly I think there are still prejudices available, you know, and around, um, you know, which, which probably, you know, mean that the advice you were given is probably still in some places still current, I'm afraid to say. But um, interesting, the pandemic has changed things a bit. 
in that it's allowed people to think differently about the way in which they work. Um, and I'd be very surprised if physical attendance at any premises is uh, a measure of uh, anybody's performance. In the in the end, it should never have been anyway. You know, just you might as well. You know, if you wanted to to win at at that game, you just have to turn up and first and leave last. But you could be rubbish during the day and still lose your job. You know, you wouldn't get instructed. So, mm. so I think. I think really people have started to focus more on outcomes rather than culture. And I think that that is a good thing, provided that people are given the opportunity to achieve, which is the, the key thing. But um, in terms of what, what brought me into the profession um, was that, I mean, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer because I was, you know, if I'm given black and white, questions multiple choice questions and i'm sure it's the same with you uh, uh and probably many of the people that are listening to this is is that if you're given uh uh you know a binary a binary answer or question uh, requiring a binary answer i often can't give you the answer because i could argue either of them both ways and i used to have to negotiate to get myself mm. out of trouble at school basically, and uh, continue that. So I always knew uh, uh, that I would, um, that was not somebody who would be a great scientist because there are right outcomes and wrong outcomes. So I wasn't really very good at maths. Mm. Uh, but I was really good at people. I always thought I was good at people and trying to help people out. And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I think I always did know I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I didn't really have the grades to do it to start off with. So um, I got into university to do um, in the in the recession in the 90s. Um, I had to do something that was a bit different. So I did um, international business, marketing and law. And that made me a bit different to the law students. Um, and then I had, I had a really good group of initial employers who were really all about outcomes and merit and there were you know and that that gave me a really strong foundation to to build from so I was given opportunity uh, and I think that you know the rest of my career has been about um and my professional work has been about making sure that other people should have opportunity as a right you know not as a not as a privilege um, and, you know, when I got ill in 2003, I thought I was going to be totally written off. And in fact, the opposite happened. I was was really supported. I was given more opportunities. And, you know, it's thanks to the way in which I was treated in, in that moment that I've been able to carry on and, and do the work that uh, I enjoy doing so much now. I think it's so lovely to hear a positive experience because as... I'm sure you know from you know people in the disability community, but also obviously all of your clients come to you with issues of discrimination or poor treatment. And it's lovely to hear that positive things are happening, particularly for me, hearing about that in the legal sector after I was, you know, essentially warned off it at 19 or 20 and ended up listening to that. So I, I'm so pleased that you've had that positive experience and I couldn't identify more with your um, negotiating your way out of trouble at school. <laughs> I had the um, previous episode to this, it's not out as we're recording it, but it will be when this one comes out, was with my childhood best friend. And we talk about some of the times where I was threatened to be sent to the principal's office for you know, not doing something or for doing something. And I go, fine, send me, see if I care. (laughs) You know, just try and challenge my way out of it. So I completely identify with you there. So I ask all of my guests this question, and I'm aware it's a really mean, big question, but what does disability mean to you? Um, So so for me... um... You know, and it's possibly, you know, it's a 
a feature of my, my work. But for me, disability all too often means a label, which is applied to somebody, um, which potentially limits their ability or, or their opportunity. Um, and, um, you know, so there's what disability means to the individual and what it, it should mean to everybody else or to society. But, but I mean, um, yeah, disability too often means it's a, it's a labeling of somebody which, which potentially is applied to limit their potential. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think, you know, some people, whether in the disabled community, will really identify with that label and then others won't. But it is, as you say, it's how you frame it and how you identify with it as an individual. You know, there are some people who, if we look at the social model of disability, they'll really not identify as disabled if access is there, which again makes complete sense. And if that's how you identify, then by all means go with it. Um, so I think that that's really a really interesting definition. Um, so we've talked about how you always knew that you wanted to be a lawyer, but who were your role models growing up? Were they in the legal profession? Were they someone completely different i think i think uh i mean role models you have different role models at different times in your life don't you um but but when i was when i was younger i don't really remember seeing many disabled people um on the telly or or whatever um i think you know i really took most of my inspiration from you know people i knew uh so in particular my family uh, my dad was a uh, a BBC broadcaster. Um, he had a, you know, he had a radio show, um, and um, uh, and I remember when I was about seven years old, he got he he got caught chicken pox, and it went into his lungs and paralysed his lungs. I remember him crawling out the house into an ambulance, and that was uh, um, he was in a coma. Well, he was in a coma over. Christmas of my seventh birthday and I remember watching uh, seeing all of that and when he came back he was a um he was about seven stone with one of those gray sort of gray anodized plastic NHS walking sticks um and um he had a permanent tracheostomy after that uh, and he couldn't he couldn't broadcast anymore because he didn't have a voice so he'd gone from somebody that was at the top of his you know, he was really on the ascent in terms of his career to having all of that taken away from him because of, you know, something that had happened. And um, and he responded to that by adapting, obviously. And But I also saw opportunities taken away from him. And I saw the way in which things worked. People responded to that well. And I also saw the challenges that came, you know, the where he where he wasn't treated fairly or as well and he dealt with that in a very dignified and pragmatic way and um i always thought that um he hadn't let what had happened to him uh affect his you know affect him as a person um it was the world around him that had to change really uh which is essentially the fundamental principle of you know the social model of disability and so I think that without knowing it um I um I think he was a role model no one no one thinks of the parents as role models when they're growing up they really uh but actually he was because um the way he responded in that situation and the way I witnessed what was happening um you know subconsciously sort of um, embedded a feeling of you know the social model and you know reasonable adjustments and the need for people to respond more positively in relation to things that happen in life that get in people's way mm. so he was a role model really uh, uh he, he died a, he died a few years ago now but i'm sure he'd be uh, uh, i'm sure he 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 would be pleased with the work that i was doing i think that that I think that that's a really amazing story. And I 
I personally can really identify with that. Um, it's not, um, it's not something I think, you know, I've shared in any great detail, but after I contracted the swine flu when I was 15, I lost my ability to speak as well, um, for about a year. And it's so funny that you mentioned that your dad was a radio broadcaster. I remember I, in my, this is very American, but in my freshman year of high school, I was about 14, 15, and I was taking a journalism class. And uh, this was just before I contracted swine flu. My journalism teacher said that I had a voice for radio. And then, of course, I lost it. So, I, you know, thank you, Mr. Lowe, for jinxing that. Um, well, well I, you proved him wrong. I you did. You still I, do. Yeah. I certainly had, but I just, I really resonate with, you know, that experience and that, you know, how it must have been to see that opportunity that your dad loved and was his job being taken away. Um, yeah. So it's, it's I think the other surreal. Thing, I think the other thing that, you know, from what you're saying and also from just thinking and reflecting on that, my dad's context, it's about losing your voice. Um, and mm. the need to be able to have a voice. And if you don't have a voice, somebody should be there to speak for you. Um, and um, I think that's super important. Did you, from that point, did you know that disability was an area of law that you wanted to explore? Or did you think that you were going to go into a different area? No, um, I, I just wanted to be a lawyer that helped people. Um, so when you're a young lawyer, especially, well, I think, in any, you're just lucky to get a job. You know, the market's so tight. Um, uh, so I went into, first thing is get a training contract. You know, uh, there are plenty of, there were plenty of people who were, who were much better grades than I did. Uh, <laughs> um, and came from much more privileged backgrounds that were, you know, so I was just lucky to get a job. Um, and it I worked in that job. I was given a role to do. It was about helping people at the time in Sheffield, where I'm, you know, where I grew up. Uh, at the time, it was about helping people who'd been, who had been damaged by the working environment. Um, so, lots of people with industrial injuries, um, people who developed respiratory problems from working in the steelworks and factories, uh, people who develop problems with their hands and fingers because of using power tools and people who become deaf from um, from working in loud environments. And, you know, so I, I was just sort of put there and related to that and did a good job because I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. People are, you know, so interesting. And, you know, uh, um, I am a people person and it was so rewarding to do work which mattered, you know, it, it didn't, you know, so, so you think about, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are plenty of very, you know, very important and uh, cases in sort of road accident, road traffic accidents and things like that, or cavity wall insulation claims or whatever, Japanese knotweed claims or whatever. I'm sure there's lots of meaningful work there, but actually um, to me that always felt as though people really were just, jumping on a bandwagon to try and recover compensation and and the law firms that were do, dealing with it didn't really do it because they wanted to make a difference it's just another means of making a few quid um, and the work I was doing was actually helping people who appreciated it and um, so I did I did some really good cases and meaningful cases and did a big group action uh, for about 3,000 people who worked in the uh, machine sheds in Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, sewing machining for garments in the 1970s and 80s. And, oh, wow. Uh, and um, that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And for a while, we changed the law and did bits and pieces. But but then after a bit, I thought, well, then 2010 happened and the Equality Act came in. And I thought, hang on, most of the people I'm helping out here I should be doing more than just getting them a compensation check. I should be thinking about the way in which 
you know, their lives are going to go after they part company with me or my law firm. And so I started to work more in terms of the Equality Act and the disability related side of the work to look at a more holistic solution Mm. to a problem rather than just the check. I think that's so interesting. And just Um, as you said, that you took a case that went up to the Supreme Court, the law nerd within me got very excited as I sit here and on my wall, I have a, a poster that has Lady Hale and Ruth Bader Ginsburg on it. You know, the two most famous Supreme Court judges in the two respective countries. So I just think that that's incredible. So what would you like to see for, particularly for disabled people in the law in terms of the equality? You said, you know, not just getting them a check. Is it about a for a lasting change in the law? Is it what would you like to see that would really impact people? Uh, well, there's so much uh, I'm working on at the moment. Um, really, there's. Um, I mean, in terms of an individual case, it's never about the check. It's really very rarely about the check. Um, it's about the change, uh, and one person. For all the deficiencies in the law and the access to justice points that are, you know, very relevant and, and current, it, it's really, it is still possible for one person to change a policy or a practice for the benefit of potentially millions of other people. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably one of the only voices in uh, disability rights at the moment in the legal context that says that the law is fit for purpose. Um it does give us the tools to be able to do what we want to change. Um, but but the deficiency, the, some of the obvious deficiencies are the lack of um, cost protection to allow people to take cases uh, and primarily the lack of um, law, lawyers moving into this workspace. Yeah. Um, so what I really want to see is I think if we can, you know, if I can train more people, if I can get more people involved, in doing this work, um, demand now isn't, you know, it isn't a, well, supply is, supply. well, demand is there. Uh, I get more inquiries in a day than I can possibly deal with. Um, the problem is being able to supply enough lawyers to do the work. Um, I would love to see, uh, I'd love to find a way of trying to train lawyer, the next generation of lawyers in this work type to provide better and more universally accessible access to this work type and to lawyers to do the mm. to the to do the work. Um, so I don't think I mean you know and I'm aware of the work that Leeds um, Centre for Disability Studies and the University of Law at Leeds is doing to try and you know include disability law as part of one of, of its modules. As far as I'm aware, they're, they're the only centre for that in the whole of the UK. You know, I, I'd love to find universities offering options in disability and equality rights work as part of their teaching processes. Um, I'd love to find law firms, you know, looking to move into this work type, um, being prepared to get involved in work, which sometimes might not look, you know, it might not make them as much money because there's not as high volume, but it would, it would make them, feel you know it, it would create uh, you know in the end a more accessible platform for people um, and you know law firms are in a privileged position and owners of law firms are in a pr- privileged position where they can they can choose what work they do it should not always be about profit it should be about what they can what they can do with that position uh, and I'd like to see see more and better uh, from the profession in terms of doing that. How much do you feel that representation within the law sector plays a role in that? When you talk about training the next generation of lawyers, would you like to see more disabled lawyers? Or sort of how much does that lived experience potentially come into play in the work that you do? I think um, 
I, I don't think it's essential to have, you know, I don't think we should have quotas necessarily. And we might need them in the early stages to try and boost, um, to try and boost representation and, and to change the culture. But, but ultimately, um, I don't think you have to have lived experience of disability to understand the, the fundamental principles, which are, you know, that everybody should have the same opportunity as everybody else, mm. um, or to understand the obligations to make reasonable adjustments. Uh, and I think sometimes there has, you know, I, I've seen before I before I outed my own experience of disability, you know, I, I know that, you know, some disabled people thought that, uh, you know, that, that, that my involvement in the work couldn't be couldn't be up to much because I was just a person without, you know, a white middle aged middle class lawyer without any lived experience benefiting from the disabled community which was totally wrong. And I, I think that's a prejudice that needs to be tackled as well. There are allies who are equally as competent at, um, and want to make a difference to society. And whether they're disabled or not disabled shouldn't matter if the outcome that people are looking for is the right one, uh, which, I, which I think has been a controversial... A few years ago, that would have been a controversial thing to say, but I hope that... Um, you know, and it, and it did create at the time, it created a, a motivation for me to actually explain why I was doing this work type. And I don't think that's right either. You know, I don't think anybody should be labelled or required to label themselves, as I said earlier. Um, I think lived experience is important and it's relevant. And, you know, people should feel free to be able to share their experience in a way which benefits the profession um but it but it shouldn't be a prerequisite you know mm. um equality is about creating the same opportunities for everybody and not denying anybody the opportunity uh, i certainly wouldn't you know I, I don't think it should be if you have a choice between uh a, a disabled lawyer in a wheelchair and chris fry um as a disabled person I'd be disappointed if they instructed the disabled person in a wheelchair just because they understood what everyday life was like in a wheelchair other than, you know, and I don't have that experience. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't expect it to be the other way around either, you know, as long as if it's a straight choice, it should be a choice between outcomes. Who gets, who gets the better outcome? Who's going to do you the best job? And fundamentally, my entire career, has been about making sure that everybody has the same opportunity to compete. Um, and, you know, that that should be the driving factor, not, um, not anything else. Although I accept that, you know, in order to reboot or, or, or yeah, essentially to reboot things, you know, shortlists which include people with lived experience are a good thing. There are some boards of directors and decision makers that should definitely be should definitely be sort of encouraged or nudged. Um, I just don't think that anybody. Um, I don't think that. I think. I think also we've got to be careful about setting people up to fail as well. And I think training is really important. So I was talking about this uh, from the context of um, um, deaf community. You know, there should be more deaf people involved at board mm -hmm. level in various organisations. Um, but if you just put somebody in there that doesn't actually have, that you've not given any support to, that hasn't been trained to have the skill set that everybody else has, then the wrong appointment at the wrong time could actually set the movement back, if you like. Uh, you don't want someone there that just to tick a box. Uh, so, the, so the problem is mm. a bit deeper. You know, we need to be not just looking at people from a representation perspective, but looking at, um, you know, when you've got that shot, you need to make it count. I've gone a bit off point there, I think. But ultimately, no, the message, no. is there, message is there that uh, I do think there's a place for, um, there's obviously a place for people with lived experience to be able to share, um, you know, 
to share their their experience within the movement but i don't think it necessarily precludes people without a lived experience from having an, a positive impact mm. i think that that's a really interesting perspective and i suppose as you were talking the more you were saying the more i was thinking about what you do is advocating for an individual in an individual circumstance so really your lived experience and your background in terms of you know things that you've experienced doesn't matter what matters is the experience of that individual would you sort of say that that's right yeah absolutely i mean you know i think i think it helps to be able to understand our I mean, to, to understand how best to help a person, you need to understand that person. Um, and, and I think, you know, lived experience helps with that. Um, undoubtedly helps with that. Um, but but fundamentally, I think, um, and that makes us better lawyers and better people generally, uh, but it shouldn't be a barrier to entering the professional being given the same opportunities mm. as everybody else. It's... Um... It reminds me of this uh, quote that someone um, in uh, a working group that I did said once that, you know, equality cuts both ways. It was um, a discussion about employment and we were having sort of an open conversation with some employers on how to manage disabled employees. And one employer said, you know, because this was a safe space they said you know well am i allowed to discipline a disabled employee if they are actually underperforming and if they if it's not because of their disability you know um because they were worried about how that would look and there was this uh, another disabled person in the meeting and said yeah absolutely you can discipline if it you know is not if it's an issue with performance, you know, of course you can talk about what the reasons are behind that and everything. And yes, disability may play a role in that, but you don't have to not discipline just because they are disabled. It, you know, that equality cuts both ways. So, uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. It's not, it cuts, it's not, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily that it cuts both ways, but, but I mean, you know, it's fundamentally equality it would be wrong it would be wrong to set people up to fail. Um, uh, you know, as I, as I said earlier, that, you know, we're, we're the next generation of pioneers on disability rights work. And, you know, what's really important is that people don't end up with a perception that, you know, that disabled person over there has to be treated, you know, uh, in a different, well, of course, Disability is a protected characteristic and, and positive steps are allowed to be taken for the benefit of a disabled person where they're not for a non-disabled person. Uh, but in that situation, you know, just keeping someone in a job, it's obviously rubbish at the job for the purpose of a tick box exercise is totally wrong. Mm. And that doesn't help in terms of engagement and inclusion and participation and all the other side of, you know, all the other reasons the Equality Act exists. And it doesn't help the next generation, you know. Um, it, mm. it, it fundamentally undermines what the equality duties are there for. You know, they're not there just to have somebody that's rubbish in a position. You know, they're there to give people that have skills and talents the opportunity to mm. properly engage in a, you know, uh, in, a, in a valued way in society. Um, so... Yeah, it's an interesting one, but uh, I mean, uh, you know, I don't think I, I don't think any, I also don't think anyone wants charity. Mm, you know, no, absolutely. Disability rights is not charity. You know, it it is about being given an opportunity based on your own merit. You know, um, that's it. You know, if if it turns out you're absolutely rubbish at something, then it's not a justification to stay in that role you know mm. yeah. I think that that's really powerful and that's really fair to to say I would certainly be angry if I was given a position just because I 
I'm visibly disabled and you could stick a photo of me on your website as opposed to the value that I could bring it to um, an organization. So I want to shift gears slightly and I want to ask you, what's the hardest barrier that you've had to overcome? Uh, I think it's been trying to persuade other people of the commercial value in doing this socially useful work, really. Oh, how interesting. Um, so I think um, this is, you know, I've I've known lots of lawyers who've come in, well, lots of owners of law firms and businesses that have come into the legal space, made a, an absolute shed load of money and then got out. And they didn't care about people at all. Um, and, you know, I've been at conferences where lawyers have been helicoptered into conference venues um, and and they'd be the first people to say that they had no idea about the law um, they'd be the first people to say oh we really love what you're doing um, but then they'd go and live this sort of rock star lifestyle somewhere and you just think yeah totally disengaged and it's all about making the money um, the um, the work the work is fundamentally good work about changing people's lives. Uh, it's about helping everyday people in everyday settings. And I think that, um, you know, commercially it's viable um, because if I help somebody at, you know, with a, a problem in the special educational tribunals at school, um, and I do a good job with that and they recognise that I'm a real person, the law's not all that scary. <laughs> then, you know, when it comes to going to university, then if there are problems with reasonable adjustments there, then I can get involved and help there. And then in educate uh, in sorry, in, in their job, I can help with reasonable adjustments there, and then I can help with everyday settings. And so it's a bit of a, you know, the role from a commercial perspective ought to be one where, you know, it's a bit like the old old old-fashioned law firms where they used to uh look after a certain you know key people all the way through their life journey and that's how you know the law firm i started out with used to was, was grew from being you know small place to about 350 people was that they they started working for people who then they needed convincing they needed this advice and that advice and they just bolted extra services on um, so i i i think that um, the difficulty has been that, that this is not a work type where you're going to make loads of money all in one go. Uh, as a law firm, you're not going to suddenly make millions out of it like you, you know, you would do if you were one of these claims warehouses that does loads of RTA claims. Mm. Um, and also, it's not a work type where people gen generally have a lot of spare cash to instruct lawyers, uh, which means that really the only way I can do my work most of my work has always been on the basis that I'll do it on a sort of buy now pay later basis which is all no win no fee thing mm. and it could take me it can take between six months and you know and a few years to win a big case um, and in that time that means you've got to be paying you've got to be paying the salaries of people um, before you start getting the cash in so, so um, I think the, the, the problem has been being able to persuade law firms to move into a work type which is more so, you know, which requires a decent upfront, uh, upfront investment to be able to capitalise that work. But I think the reward is there because once you do persuade people that this is a viable work type, I don't lose many cases, for example, you know, the the courts are fairly good at allowing us to recover, um, you know, the legal fees associated with bringing these cases because there's a lack of representation elsewhere. That um, you know, that law firms yeah. will start moving into it. Um, um, so so yeah, I think the bigger problem has been that looking at this work time through a commercial filter has meant um, in an un, un, untested area. Where there's not really much case law and the case law there is is pretty much mine um 
that there's no easy blueprint for law firms to make quick money out of. Um, and a lot of the time, and especially in the, through the pandemic now, law firms need to do work which is going to make them some quick quick money. Mm. Uh, so um, you've got to find the right people with the right budgets and the right motivation, and there aren't that many around. That's so interesting, and there are a couple of things in there that I want to pick out, but the first is when you talk about the commercial value, I think that's really interesting. It's something that I came across when I was working on disabled people's access to food during the pandemic. And we saw that a lot of the supermarket websites had a lot of accessibility barriers for disabled people. But I think, you know, from what you were saying, I was sort of initially thinking, oh, I really identify with that because I had to make a commercial case for why supermarkets should care that there's no alt text or they have poor color contrast. But as you were talking, I thought at least I had the benefit of having the value of the purple pound statistic, which is for people who don't know, the spending potential of disabled people in the UK. And it's a vast amount of money, but it you're right. It's very diff. It must be very difficult from your perspective to you know, not have that incredibly powerful step behind you and try and get people to care because it's morally right or because someone is in a very difficult circumstance that they have the power to change. Yeah, um, I think I think that's right. I mean, it's, it is always very difficult to prove a negative, you know, um, because there's no what you know, there's nobody to point to to, sh- to show what a great business idea is. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the, the strength of yeah. the, the purple pound thing is, is that it, it can show what a great idea it is to just make your business more accessible. And I think, you know, for law firms moving into this work time is a really great opportunity to uh, to be the leader on making legal services more accessible. You know, um, mm. the, the purple pound hasn't really focused on law firms or the legal sector generally, and uh, it would be helpful if it did, I think, because it would show how much how much more we mm. could do as lawyers. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about the Purple Pound in regards to different sectors, because I think, you know, the, the main area that I've used, as I said, was with supermarkets, and that's a completely vital everyday service, whereas you know, law is incredibly vital, but it is, you know, on an ad hoc basis. Um, but I I know not mm. too long ago, a good friend of mine was um, looking at a sort of coming with a judicial review case for the government's decision to abandon all restrictions, particularly the restriction for people to self-isolate when they test positive for coronavirus and what that would mean for the clinically extremely vulnerable community. And she was asking me, you know, about legal aid and things like that. And one thing that was quite surprising to me was she found that, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but that she wouldn't qualify for legal aid if she had more than £3,000 in other savings or assets. And, you know, obviously, yeah, that is a good Mm. bit of money. But if you own your own home or if you own a car or, you know, all of these little assets that can add up and it's sort of Mm. implying that you can't have any savings, but the cost that she would be facing if she took that judicial review case would be far greater than £3,000. So... It was a sort of a rock and a hard place mm. position. Yeah, I mean it's appalling, frankly. Um, and you know, even if you did qualify for legal aid, there's another argument about who, you, what sort of representation you get, uh, because the law firms. Mm. Um, I don't want to get myself into trouble now, but uh, my experience is that law firms that are doing the work on a legal aid contract um, do it to do it to maximize their rewards under the legal aid contract and not necessarily 
uh, you know, you won't find necessarily that they employ the very best lawyers in that work type. Um, and sure. um, it's the same issue that they, you know, the bar dealt with recently when it was looking at, you know, when it went on strike about legal aid rates for criminal law work, you know. Um, and what's the difference between the reason they went on strike there and the, and the issue that we're facing here is that, you know, um, you know, if you are faced with a life-changing situation that you really need to do something about and you qualify for legal aid, then you should at least expect um, the best representation that money can buy. And that's not what you're getting at the moment. Um, so in criminal law, for example, you'll get somebody who's a junior barrister without much track of a track record. Well, you know, you could lose your civil liberties. Mm. You know, your life is in their hands just because you don't have enough money in the bank. You know, that's that's not right. Um, and it's the same with enforcement of disability rights, for example. Um, you know, you need somebody that is going to commit to making a difference. And some of these cases are really complicated. They've not been litigated before and they are often more complicated because it's the first time that judges have dealt with them. Mm. You know, and, and they may not have lived experience, for example, and you have to go through the process of education and, and what have you uh, in that. And, and ultimately, it's really important that these issues are, I mean, in a criminal law context, of course, you're looking at a decision which affects one person. Sure. Disability rights, you're looking at one which affects thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes millions of others, uh, as well as the individual. So, so I think... Um, I think legal aid, um, legal aid in this work time, I mean, the lack of proper funding uh, relates to the lack of lawyers that are competently trained in this work type, which relates to the lack of um, precedent, which relates to the lack of firms prepared to put the money in to allowing these cases to develop. And, you know, I, I, I tried my best on that for, for, for a while. Um, but this is a work type that does require some decent upfront capital to be able to make it work um, there are lawyers obviously who will do work on a no win no fee basis and some who will do it on a which is buy now pay later basically <laughs> or lawyers who will do it pro bono um, but you know I think that is the that is the burden of this generation of lawyers um, we we've been we I mean also you know it's that it's a problem because we can't demonstrate the financial viability of the work type mm. um, or not, not, you can't provide immediate instant financial returns in the same way you could with other work types. Um, on the other hand, you know, hopefully by the time I retire, if I ever get to, um, uh -huh. then, then I, then there'll be an, uh, there'll be a series of blueprints for people to follow and, you know, roadmaps for people to follow. Um, and the profession will be much more accessible. The ability for people to enforce their rights will be better. It will be more, more commercially viable. I think in any work type, when you're at the vanguard of, you know, of that, then you, you have to accept that you're never really going to make, you know, I'm never going to really see any decent returns commercially through my lifetime, but, but it's going to be spectacularly rewarding as it has been so far in the, you know, it's just great doing good things that make a difference. You know, when I, when I get on the bus, you know, and I see somebody moving the buggy out of the space on the bus, you know, I think, well, that's good. I had something to do with that. You know, little life wins as you go. Yeah. Uh, and that's good enough for me. I think that that's incredible when you really get to see that, that impact. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the financial returns and the financial impact and all of that i mean obviously it's incredibly different but on a much much smaller scale i'm sort of feeling that with this podcast a little bit you know the minute i'm i'm self-funding it but it's too important to me not to do because it's a project that i'm so passionate about and provide that representation so in a in a very small way i see i see what you mean there and wanted to ask you because you said that you get more you know uh, people contacting you every day that you could ever possibly 
deal with, you know, asking for your help. How do you go about deciding what cases to take? Obviously, capacity comes into that, but how do you select what you work on? Because I'm always seeing you being tagged on Twitter from people who are asking for for legal advice and I, I've probably tagged you as well thinking, oh, I know who could answer that. But how how do you go about making that selection process? It's, I think the first and foremost thing in, is capacity. Um, you know, well, it's, it's just really difficult, Emma. You know, um, when I had my own law firm, I would just basically, the default setting was, yes, we'll do it. And I had people that I would just put the work to. Um, but actually, yeah. that ended up not being the right answer because, you know, we we, we got over capacity and then people had a, uh, a feeling that we would, you know, that, that people get offended if we said we couldn't help. Um, and so there's a sense of expectation. The difficulty is now, I'm, you know, I'm now I'm now working more or less, you know, just on a self-employed basis. And that's meant that's been a real positive because I've been able to get back into doing the work that I really enjoy. I really did not like having to do the spreadsheets, the compliance, the regulation. Uh, and, and to be honest, I don't think I was really that great at it either. What I was really good at doing was doing the cases. And, you know, so I'm really enjoying just getting back to doing mm. that. Um, the difficulty is that, that you know, that, that fundamentally the problem is resource. And I'd be letting people down if I said I could help and then just couldn't get to the case for weeks on end. In the end, there'd be problems. So I think the first the first issue is resource. But but there are cases that come along that, you know, you know, that are really, really sort of critical to somebody. And I will always try and do what I can to try and help with that case if I can. Um, and there are some cases I take on where I'm not sure I'm necessarily going to win them. Um, and given that I only get paid if I win, I'm basically taking that hit personally, financially. But I think that those cases are likely to make a difference. You know, they might put something on the, you know, in the public consciousness that wasn't there before. Um, they might, you know, start a conversation and lead to other people inspiring other people to come forward to bring cases um so i still am able to do that work um but there's a limit to what i can do because i'm just one person still so i, I tend to try and uh, i'm trying to refer cases to other lawyers who i think i'm trying to inspire other lawyers to get trained in this work type and create a network of people that i trust that I can pass work to uh, I'll try and help people by producing, uh, I still send people lots of uh, guides on how to complain about this, that and the other free templates. You know, you talked about the supermarket stuff, did a huge amount during COVID on that. Um, and that's made a difference. Sometimes I get people who come to me that say, I've tried to run this case myself and I've got to this point and I can't do it anymore. And I look at the letters and think, oh, that was one of mine. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so because it means I know it was properly put together really and, and it makes it easier to take it on. Um but no I think the I think the barriers are fundamentally um resource. Um I try and do what I can to 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 juggle things, but um it's very difficult. I think overall I do take case as to summarize, I do take cases which are not guaranteed to win because it's a work a new work type it's an evolving space not many of my cases are ever guaranteed to win but you know you know the feel you know you get a feeling for cases yeah. that are going to make a difference and uh, and I'm usually right about that uh, and I have I work with an excellent um barrister Kathy Castley at Cloisters um and you know since I've been working with Kathy our success rate has been like you know 90 or percent so uh so, so there's a second filter. So even if I say I really want to run this case and she says you're going to, this is absolutely not going to work, you know, then, then I mean, it, it takes a lot for me to say no, basically. Mm. Um, but, if I do it, it, but if I do it, it's typically resource related. I really, I really resonate 
with that because, you know, as an activist, sort of a, in an individual capacity, but also, you know, that works with various other organizations, you know, you you hear about so many issues impacting people every day and it's really difficult to say no. Um, or, you know, when someone asks you for help, you know, and you have an answer or you can signpost them in the right direction. But I definitely know what you mean about working on things that you know aren't going to win, but you still do it because it matters. And I think, you know, coming back to what we said at the very beginning of this about having a voice, I think sometimes even working on an issue or a campaign or a case that you know is very unlikely that you're going to win, it still can make someone feel validated and heard because something was done on it. You may not succeed, but they felt heard. And there's so much value in that. Yeah. I think I think often it's it's not always a no. It's a just not at the moment. Um, I think that's the way I'd like to look at it. But mm. the problem of the problem with our work type is that you know that there are strict time limits to bringing cases that often people don't know about. Um, so one of the things I've asked the government to look at changing several times over the last few years is this six month time limit. You know so. You know, if you if you have um, you could have the most easy win case of discrimination, uh, but if it goes beyond six months before you issue a, a court claim form, then you're out of time. I mean, there yeah. are some sort of nuances to that, but that's generally out of time. Well, if you think about just the economics of that situation, millions of people having multiple examples of those problems on a daily basis. And a very small number of people being able to do anything about it. Why? Why make it more difficult by narrowing that further into, you know, there's a limit to the number of cases a person can take on when they're covered by six month time limits. You know, mm. um, so so again, I think that it comes back down to the whole thing about we need more people, need more people doing this work. Um, we could do so much better with more lawyers entering this workspace. Um, and why wouldn't you do it? You know, it's just good work. Um, and, um, you know, and there's still plenty of new cases that people could take. And, you know, so if anyone listening to this wants to get involved, uh, then, you know, get in touch because I need you. I, yeah, I, I mean, not going to lie, I'm now thinking about a career change. Well, but... I mean, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to get you involved with it. But oh, I completely agree if anyone is listening to this who is interested, you know, it it really can be so rewarding and empowering for yourself to you know, help someone in sometimes really dire situations and succeed. It just feels amazing. But I want to end this really interesting conversation on on a high note um what is something that you are the most proud of yeah i'm most proud of i'm most proud of, of people's confidence and trust in me to be able to you know you know to allow me to bring some of these cases you know uh, a case is not just about a case it's about you know it's about being part of somebody's life during a case and um you know it's a memorable event so this morning i watched there's a there's a documentary um that's been produced on the work i did on the where is the interpreter campaign uh, for lynn stewart taylor yes yeah and um i watched i watched that this morning and just you know obviously that's a case i lived and breathed and still am um and i knew it was an important case but what that documentary showed, and it's because it's fresh in my mind, I think this is the reason I've chosen this as, your, uh, as the answer to this question, is that it showed just how much work even goes into just instructing a lawyer. Um, how difficult it is to add l legal stuff to an already, you know, full life um, and to be trusted by people 
to be that person that they think could be the advocate or champion in that situation um, is hugely humbling. And uh, I'm very, you know, I'm very grateful for that. So I think I think the most important thing to me is that, um, you know, the thing that will have mattered to me when I finally um, hang up my clogs, so to speak, and pass over to somebody else is the um, is the feeling that I did something that mattered, that was trusted to do something that mattered, and hopefully that I fulfilled, you know you know, responsibility that was left or is given to to do that. I can't think of a better way to end this incredibly interesting conversation other than to say thank you so, so much, Chris, for being on this podcast and sharing your expertise in the legal sector with us. And um, it's, it's just so interesting to hear about the amazing work that you are doing. And I really hope that people will have learned something about the legal system and will hopefully feel empowered that there are areas, there are avenues for them to address things legally that are unfair, that are un- that there are not right. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me, Emma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Chris Fry. I certainly enjoy talking about the legal system and how it serves and doesn't serve disabled people, as well as learn about some of the amazing cases he's taken a huge, huge role in. Before you go, I just want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe and a Patreon for this podcast. All donations will allow us to continue to invest back into the accessibility of this podcast by making sure that all of the content is accessible to everyone. If you're able to donate anything, that would be amazing. And if not, share this podcast as far and wide as you'd like to so that everyone can benefit from these amazing conversations. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode.